It's Friday, June the 12th. We're studying 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. We've come to verse number 13, which is a great and hopeful, optimistic passage after a lot of really difficult things about judgment and the coming judgment on the world. We saw in verse 11 about things being dissolved or unloosed and uh, what kind of people we ought to be now in the struggle for holiness and godliness. We're waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, which was a good exhortation pastorally, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now here's our verse for today, verse 13. But according to his promise, which goes back to the context, we'll look at that in a minute, we are waiting for uh, new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. That's a great, great, optimistic, encouraging, hope-filled passage. But let's start with this statement about the promise. To get back into the context, we remember that that is what is being reinforced by Peter as he's writing this letter. And certainly the Spirit of God is moving him to write this letter, so it would be good not only for that generation, but for us as well. And he says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. These are things you know, and they should be pinned to the front of your mind. You ought to think about them often. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we've got the words of Christ. We've got the promises of the prophets of the Old Testament, the predictions that are going to be in the wake of chapter 2, a promise of judgment on the bad guys, on the false teachers, on those who do not believe or trust or follow Christ, and causing a lot of trouble for the church. Now, but also the positive that we're going to get to in our passage. But they say um, that it's not going to happen. Not only the false teachers not fear the coming judgment, you got scoffers, it says, that will come in the last days with their scoffing following their own sinful desires. That's the tie to chapter 2 as you remember. And they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So the promise is what we are remembering and have looked at throughout our text as being reliable, faithful. God is faithful to keep his promise. And the Bible's just trying to elaborate here for us that according to that promise, we can wait for something very, very good that should motivate us not only negatively, as I often say, the stick that kind of drives us and prods us, but also the carrot for which we're, we're reaching forward to. We can't wait for this. And what is it? Well, in our passage, it's a new heavens, right? A set of new heavens and new earth. Of course, this is plural, the idea of the heavens being the sky, the space, everything that's above us. And we've also got a new heaven where God dwells that's going to be remade as well. Uh, and the new earth, which is expanded upon in Revelation chapter 21. And since it's such a positive statement, I want to look at it to remind us of what is held out like a carrot, if you will, moving us down the road with anticipation for what's coming. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In this case, I think we're talking about the heaven that God is going to live in. And with this new earth comes all the heavens here talked about uh, that referred to the sky and space and stars and all the cosmic bodies out there. Uh, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, a sign of God's judgment. Um, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned or dressed up for her husband. And there's a picture of something we delight in, that we want, that we desire as we pray. I hope God grows that desire for a new place, this new place that is being prepared for us, that is all that we could want, all that we desire in our godly desires, all that we want to see happen in uh, the environment, in our society, in our culture, all of that's coming. And it's prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And so often we think of uh, the husband being Christ and we, the church, being the bride. 
And there's certainly truth to that. But the Bible here says that we are the husband and the city is the bride. And we are looking at this new home that is coming. In this case, it's being uh, revealed and inaugurated in chapter 21 of Revelation. And in that gift that God gives us, this place that he's prepared for us, that he's now granting us from the throne of God, where he lives, he'll say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Finally. Right? We haven't had that. That's the reality of all of God's blessings drawing near. All of the good that comes with God. All the, as I like to say, the unmitigated glory of God and all the positives that come with that are going to be delivered to the place where people live. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will, thinking of the things we have to deal with now, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death, the problem of separation, shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. Just think about those things. Anymore, for the former things have passed away. And, and I've got it on to verse 7. We're going to look at that. But I just want you to stop and think about that. No death. Right? All the things that would make us cry, no mourning, no crying, no pain, all those things are part of the former situation that we're in that we've looked at extensively or at least multiple times here in chapter 3 of Second Peter that we're waiting to have those things done and finished. And God says all of that's going to be done with. Now here's the statement of God's trustworthy word. He says this, now he who was seated on the, on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write it down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Now that promise was given here in the first century on the island of Patmos as John the Apostle is getting this revelation about the end of all things being consummated in the coming of Christ, the steading up of his kingdom, and then the establishment of an eternal state called the New Jerusalem. And the Bible says, listen, you can count on that. This is a promise that we can wait on and bank on and all the good things that go with us because it is true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the uh, Greek alphabet. I'm the A and the Z, and of course he's trying to get to here in a poetic way, talking about on the beginning and the end. I preceded all of it, and I will supersede all of it. I am going beyond into eternity, and you're going to come with me as I grant you eternal life. But I existed before any of this started. I planned it out. I gave you the prophecies through the prophets. All of this is certain and sure. And to the thirsting, of course, we are. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It'll be free to us. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And this is the way he uses this phrase in the beginning of the book, chapters 2 and 3, about the one who overcomes or conquers. We're going to have this inheritance, as Peter talks about, this inheritance that's reserved and kept in heaven for us, but one day we'll come down out of heaven, and I will be his God, which is way better than we think. Sometimes in our relationship with God, it gets old, or we're not thinking the way we ought to about it, or we can't imagine it, or it's foggy. Well, when God, the real God that created us and knows everything about human beings and what would make human human life perfect and and and, and and con content and satisfying and fulfilling all those things God is going to have those because he himself is going to draw near and we will be his sons and daughters that's the picture particularly son because not as a misogynistic kind of uh, male patriarchy but because sons are the ones in the ancient world that are the inheritors and they get the inheritance of course there are exceptions to that even in the Bible the idea though of the picture of getting all that God has owns will now be granted to you and that's the picture of being the children of God. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. What's that look like? I want to talk about this because we're going to live not only uh, on the new earth, but it says in a city we're going to live, this new Jerusalem. I want to talk about the fact that we're going to inhabit that earth with resurrection bodies. And whenever I can get a chance to emphasize that so you don't think about this as Casper the friendly ghost with a see-through body and 
cotton ball clouds and everything's kind of you know translucent that's not the reality this is a real place and Jesus showed us what a resurrection body looked like here in his post-resurrection appearances in Luke chapter 24 when he says in verse 37 uh, where it's, it says in verse 37 that they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit because they knew it was Jesus I'm like well wait a minute we saw Jesus die and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your mind? Of course, he had promised he would rise from the dead. He says, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me. You can actually touch me. I'm material. You can see me here and see. For a spirit, right? If I'm just a disembodied spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. So Jesus, talking with a set of lungs moving air through his, you know, his, his windpipe out of his mouth as his tongue and his, his mouth and teeth are making these distinct sounds as he's speaking to them, I assume in Greek, some would say Aramaic, but here he is communicating in a language they understood. All of this is something he says you can touch it, you can feel it is real. And so this new earth that we're going to live in, as I think some theologians of late have made a good emphasis to put that emphasis on the fact that this is a real tactile experience that is not some spiritual, you know, translucent, not real reality. It's a real reality, which is, I think, a helpful thing. Another passage in our uh, daily Bible reading we're running into here soon in John chapter 21, when they got out on the land, uh, this is the disciples and those that went with him, not all of them, but some of them with Peter out fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They saw a charcoal fire with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said, come bring some of the fish that you caught. Simon went on board. He hauled the shore, the large catch of fish that Jesus had directed those fish into that net, 153 of them, which is interesting. They took time to count them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. So here he is having meals again with these disciples. He's chewing on, in this case, bread and fish. And uh, he's doing this in a real body with real teeth. The difference is it's no longer subject to death and dying. And none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? Right? They'd watched him die uh, sometime earlier, but they knew it was the Lord they could tell. And obviously he is now proving that he is physically alive and the body that went into the grave has now come out of the grave, only it's different in the sense that it is no longer subject to death. That's why I think it's good when we think about the new earth and our inhabiting of the new earth, which is the promise that we're supposed to be anxiously and at least enthusiastically eagerly waiting for. We should think about the bodies with which we'll live in this new world, this new city. Some will ask, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, you do not, he says, what, do you, uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he says this because the critics are saying it's silly to think about, you know, people coming out of the grave. I mean, they're going to be zombies. What are they going to be like? He's really dealing with, in a harsh way, the critics. And then he goes on to explain. And he gets to the heart of it in verse 42 and 43 when he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown perishable, right? We end up being people that grow old and, and look worse and get, you know, achy and saggy and all the rest. All that is done. We don't end it in death. No longer are we perishable. We're imperishable. Like the perfect banana, I often say, right? Just, it's exactly what it ought to be. It's exactly the way it should be in its perfection and maturity. Uh, it's raised imperishable. And what's sown in dishonor, right? Our, by the time, if you grow to be an old age, right? We put your body in a box and put you in the ground. That's a dishonorable thing. It doesn't look good. It's death. It's bad. 
and yet it, it, this body is raised in glory. What kind of body do they come with? Well, they come with an imperishable and glorious body. Uh, this word doxa is the same word that is used uh, describing the lilies of the field when it talks about Solomon not being dressed uh, even in all of his, his kingly royal regalia in nothing compared to the beauty of the flower. And God's going to uh, clothe the the uh, fields, the lilies of the field uh, with flowers, the fields with flowers, certainly he, he knows how to clothe us, so us of little faith. And the way he's going to clothe us ultimately is in a beautiful body that is imperishable. It's sown in weakness, and that is uh, demonstrably the case. The older we get, uh, more and more weakness, but it's going to be raised in power. It's going to be fueled. And so this is the kind of body with which it's going to come. It's going to come with this kind of uh, real tactile body that's going to eat. You'll be able to hug each other. You'll be able to see each other. You'll be able to connect over meals. All of this is going to be a part of this new heavens and new earth, right? Space is going to be there to marvel at. The sky is going to be there for birds to fly around in. And the new earth is going to be there for us to live in. Now, the last phrase, in which righteousness dwells. And I still have up here verse First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, but I've added now verse 44 to this because I want to remind you that it's a place where no longer will you struggle with the things you struggle with now. It is sown a natural body, right? It's a body that's fallen. It's an earthly body. It's a body that reflects Adam and Eve and their rebellion, but it's raised a spiritual body. Now, if there's a natural body, a body that rebels, there's also a spiritual body, which is Christ after his resurrection. You see, he has no temptation anymore. He is there as a godly person. Some people have taken this phrase here, spiritual body, to mean back to that Casper the Friendly Ghost ghost analogy. It must be some you know, translucent, non-tactile body. Well, that's not the case at all. The idea of this word spiritual is used not only in the Bible, but we use it in everyday vocabulary to talk about people that are godly. And in this case, the Bible Bible says very clearly, not only will we have a new heart, which we've already gotten a taste of now as God changes our inside, but we're also going to have a spiritual or a godly body. But just for the sake of completeness, this place where righteousness dwells is going to be uh, driven by people and guided and, and, and dominion is going to be exercised by people and it's going to be governed by people who have good hearts. Uh, look at this, Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove that heart of stone, that heart of, that Ephesians 2 says is dead to God, and give them a heart of flesh. Now, that's not the fallen flesh we're talking about, but the heart that is real. The analogy is a heart of stone isn't going to move blood through your body. It's not going to make you alive. You'd be dead with a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh makes you live. And they will walk in my statutes. Now, here's the plain explanation. And they will keep my rules and obey them. And that's what we're seeking to do, right? But we have trouble trying to be God's people in this world. Uh, they will be my people and I will be their God. That's hard because keeping the rules and obeying God, we're in a constant battle, as Peter had said, that the passions of the flesh are waging war against the soul. But according to Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 20 through 24, all of this creation, and we're a part of it, our bodies are made of all of this material stuff of the world. It's subjected to futility now, not willingly, not because it wanted to, but because of him, God, who subjected it, but he did it in hope that the creation will be, here's the promise here, the promise that we're waiting for, set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now we're going to be glorified and we're going to dwell in a place, a new heaven, a new earth, in which righteousness permanently dwells. For we know that the whole creation, even now, it's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until this very point. That was in the first century, and here we are, here we are, 20, you know, uh, in the 21st century, having the same concerns. We can't wait for this to be over. 
but not only the creation, but we ourselves, particularly we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. God has indwelt our hearts and given us that Ezekiel experience of a new desire from within. We groan inwardly. Why? Because we're waiting eagerly, and that's the hope that we are waiting for this to happen with eagerness. We're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Well, I thought we were sons of God. Well, we are. We've been given a new heart. But the reality of the redemption that God is going to do to make all things new, well, that hadn't taken place in the world, in the cosmos, and it hadn't taken place in our bodies yet. But one day it will. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he sees? We don't have it now, but we're waiting eagerly for it. A new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I hope you get excited about the fact that you will be righteous through and through and you'll live in a place that's going to be righteous and he will reign the bible says forever and ever in that place and that ought to motivate us uh that's it doesn't even need to be compared to a carrot and a mule or a horse but i'm telling you if it you as a christian can be motivated by something it ought to be by the grand picture the great picture of the redemption of this world and the redemption of your body which is you've gotten a foretaste for i trust by the redemption of your heart so these are the good things we look forward to god's promises are sure he's going to keep his promises as this text says. So we're going to be back continuing our study through 2 Peter next time. Thanks for joining us today.